Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Do the academics if you can, but do not lose sight of what are all the other capabilities that you might have. The best thing that you can do as a new leader is to really have a sense of what it is that you desire. What is your vision for your team? What would you want those people in, the, in that team to say about you six months from now? If something happens to you and you do feel like you need to react to something that makes you uncomfortable, it is always better to have a plan for how you will say it. Once you decide that something has to change, you ought to have a plan about what it is you're looking for, because you shouldn't run away from the job. You should run towards the next opportunity. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 40 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my good friend, Gina Cox. Hi, Gina. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Harsha. Oh, my gosh. Finally, we get to have this conversation. I've been really looking forward to this. You know, I listen to your podcast all the time when I'm riding my bicycle and I learn so much and I have actually met people in, well, not so much met them face to face because, you know, we've still got this pandemic, but I have made contact with people that I have met through your podcast. And so it's not just a matter of sort of learning. It's a matter of an opportunity to develop new relationships. So I have been admiring your work for a long time. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And And actually, I think Florida is one of the top um, downloads in the US. So I'm sure that's down to you. So thank you for that. Um, But before we begin, I wanted to thank all the supporters of the podcast and YouTube channel, just like Gina, for their amazing support. A special shout out to the US, where it has now been downloaded more than a 1000 times. And I had my first download in Missouri and South Dakota. Please subscribe, like and share if you enjoy the content. So back to the show. Dr. Gina Cox is an organizational psychologist, executive coach, and author of the new book, Leading Inclusion, a groundbreaking guidebook for corporate leaders who want to build inclusive organizations from the top down. Gina has spent more than 25 years helping leaders in the Fortune 500 and other large global companies build healthy and engaging organizational cultures. Gina is a straight shooter, who brings warmth and generosity of spirit to her partnerships. A noted voice on human-centered leadership, Gina shows executives how to stop using 2019 behavior to address 22 workplace challenges. Gina was born in England, raised in Barbados, and lives in the US, and would like to holiday in Scandinavia. (laughs) 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 I've done my research, Gina. Anyway, welcome to the show, Gina. Uh, It's great to be here, Harsh. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Fantastic. So I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share? Uh, A song, book or film? You know, I suppose I'll go with a book uh, because I wouldn't even have written my own book or done some of the things that I do today if it had not been for reading work written by Maya Angelou. And 
everybody at this point knows the name Maya Angelou, but the reason she had such a profound effect on my life was her book, you know, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, was the first book I had ever read that was written by a Black woman. And somewhere along the line, or at least a woman that I knew to be Black, and somewhere along the line, I saw her photograph. And when I saw her photograph, I fell in love with Maya Angelou because she kind of looked like me, you know, in the sense that um, as a person, you know, I was, I was skinny, I was tall, my skin was darker. I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me in the things I was reading and, and on TV and so on. So I fell in love with Maya Angelou. And then, of course, the book itself, the, this whole notion, at least I should say even all of her books, because I think of her books as sort of a series, an exposition that makes it clear to all humans that, you know, we're on, we're on this little circle together. We ought to do what we can to be our best as individuals. And as we do so, we must make sure that we bring other people along, we raise other people up, we stick to the positive things and we let the negative go away. You know, we know that it's not easy, right? But um, there's a quote that she has in one of her books or, or that I've read somewhere about for, that came from her. And basically what she conveys is this notion as she navigates in the world, she does not let the negative vibes come in. So she says, you know, if you're at her house and you're sitting at her dinner table and somebody over there, three seats away, says something derogatory about a person who is LGBTQ plus or someone on the right side says something derogatory about a person who has a disability of whatever kind. The minute she hears it, she says, not in my house. And she escorts that person away literally. And she has done that. The point that she, she makes is that we, each of us, we're all the same. We're just humans on this planet. So each of us has to give ourselves grace, but even it's more important for us to give everybody else around us grace. So Harsha, Maya Angela is someone whose work has empowered me, powered me, inspired me for decades. And it's not just about the writing. It's about being a citizen you know, of the world. No, I, I just love that, Gina. I like the, the whole thing about representation, because I think if you can see people who look like you or from a similar background, then I think mentally you think, oh, it's not that hard. And actually, part of the reason that I like doing the podcast and exploring different people's journeys is that hopefully our listeners can see, look, um, we're not geniuses. I mean, obviously, we have you know a, a base level of ta talent and uh, qualifications and intelligence, but actually we're not that special. We could, we're we're pretty similar to everybody else. My, myself and my, well, obviously my guests are more talented. <laughs> you want to get better guests no. than you, but, but no. But I think yeah, and then they can see okay, th these are journeys that people have had um, and achieved you know some uh, special things, and I think that's really helpful. Um, that if you can see people like you or from a similar background or or people who've endured uh, hardships, then you think these things are, are possible. I mean, what do you think, Gina? Oh, I absolutely agree. And, you know, two Saturdays ago, I flicked on the television just for the fun of it. And there was a woman on there on CNN. Um, it was CNN headline news, which I don't really watch that much. But I what caught my attention immediately, Harsha, was that this woman who was the anchor for this headline news show was a woman who looked like me. And you would think that after all these years, by this point, I'm not really paying attention. And in fact, it wasn't like I 
wanted to pay attention. It was just an emotional reaction that I had to this woman. Her name, I believe, is Natisha or Letitia um, Lance. And, and oh. I'm probably butchering her name. And I, if anyone knows her, please apologize, because um, at least I know the last name I gave you was correct. Her first name might not have been. But here's the thing. I saw this woman and I suddenly I, I kind of like was startled. I was like, wait a minute. I just figured out, I do not think I had seen a dark-skinned woman on an anchor position at CNN. And by the way, I love CNN. I'm not criticizing <laughs> CNN. But I felt so strongly about this observation that I sent her a note on Instagram, which is another thing that is atypical of me, because much as I use social media, I primarily use it to talk about business. But I wanted to let her know that she had been seen, and I wanted to let her know that it almost automatically made me feel like I wanted to watch more of that show and of that network. So, you know, representation does matter and it probably is more subliminal, the effect of it, than people even realize. So I, I can tell you that this continues to be true. It's just a human thing. Yeah, no, it's a great, great point. Now, um, you were born in the UK, but you uh, obviously you were raised in Barbados. Lucky mm-hmm. you. And <laughs> now, I love cricket, and some of my yeah. early heroes were from the West Indies. Yeah. So what was it like growing up there? And why don't you like cricket, Gina? What's going on there? <laughs> well, it's not that I don't like cricket. In fact, I was talking to my dad about this weekend, about that this weekend. It's not like I don't like cricket. But when I was growing up, it was all, it was omnipresent. Everybody that I know, every relative, every friend, would stop everything that they were doing to at least listen to test matches or watch test matches on television. And my father to this day, every time that I talk to him, he talks about how invaluable his, um, his iPad is because he can catch it with the test matches wherever they are in the world. And I think the last time I was talking to him, he was talking about Grenada and about how people were disappointed that there weren't more people in the stands. He's going through all these details. So cricket is a part of my life and I like it. I understand it. I even understand terms like city, silly mid-off. Like, <laughs> in fact, as a child, I would laugh like who made up these names? Silly mid-off. But nevertheless, that is a bit of a digression, but it always makes me laugh when I think about it. Um, but along the way, I think I was a bit of a, I was a, I was much more interested in other sports. And so on a personal level, I have always been into track and field. I've uh-huh. always been in. Yeah. So I pay much more attention to those kinds of sports. Um, and over time, I just paid less attention to cricket, but cricket um, is not just a game in Barbados. You know, you talked about how important it is, um, not well, not just in Barbados, not just in the Caribbean, but in all of the in England and primarily all of the British colonies uh, or former colonies. Oh. But, you know, Sir Garfield Sobers, who I could never say cricket and Barbados and not mention him. And the thing about Sir Garfield Sobers and his contemporaries, you know, whether you're talking about West Hall um, or some of the others of, je- of that generation, what I know about them is that they were cricket players, but that is not why they're remembered. They're remembered for being statesmen, for being leaders, for people who had these standards that represented a whole group of people from a region that was not well known quality of their work was important, but ultimately they were great, you know, um, they're human. So I'm sure they made all kinds of mistakes, but what we remember about them is that when, if Sir Garfield Sobers shows up in a spot, you can be sure that this person is going to be uh, an authentic person with integrity that you would want to have around you. So the funny thing about cricket and all the other kinds of sports is that 
we remember, I think we remember sports people uh, for their contributions well beyond the particular game or sport. Uh, and cricket, I, I certainly, you can see, even though I don't follow everything that goes on in cricket, I know that it has a profound impact on my values and the things that I believe. And, that, and that's an interesting point because I, I, obviously I, I'm originally from Sri Lanka, so a former British colony. And I think it's that whole idea of, you know, you're playing the mother country. It's a connective tissue with the, the motherland or whatever. And I think it, it also is a sense of empowerment because yes. you take the game, which the, the British gave to the, the colonies. And then if you can get good at it, you're, you're playing on a level playing field. Uh, mm -hmm. And you, if you have talent and you're good at it, then you're meeting on this equal level. And I think that's, you know, it's empowering. Uh, you feel good about yourself. And for me, I, I play a lot, lot when I was young. So for me, uh, cricket has, it, it's, it's more than just a game. It's yes. given me self-confidence, um, the ability to do some amazing things in my life. Uh, mm -hmm. And without that, I would have been slightly lost. So yeah, just, yeah. just love that point, Gina. Yeah. And, you know, Harsha, let me share one other thing with you. That's just, I just thought of as we were speaking, I have been really lucky in so many ways in my life. But one of the things that relates to this conversation is that when I was an undergraduate student, I was in the United States. I was relatively new here. I've had a whole semester class course that was taught by Arthur Ashe. Oh, now, wow. Gosh. Arthur yeah. Ashe is a yeah. legend. You know, people know him as a tennis player, yeah. as a legend. Totally, yeah. But what most people do not, even to this day, know about Arthur Ashe is that he's also sort of an academic. I think had he... Had he lived longer, he for sure would probably have been a professor, maybe on a full-time basis for some period of his life, because he wrote at least four books uh, on the history of the African-American in sports. I mean, a com he has written the definitive history of, of African-Americans in sports up until the time uh, of his passing. And most people don't even know that about him. But the other thing about him was, so I would be in this class and he, he assigned each of us to help him with the research. And uh, each of us was given an athlete from, we could sort of pick, he would give us a short list and we could pick. And what was really fascinating about that was I remember doing all of this research very seriously and writing all my stuff up. And I thought that what he was going to do was he was going to criticize me because I had missed an important fact because he probably knew already a lot about these athletes and so on. But the review that he did of my paper, I remember this distinctly, was all the red ink because he was also a grammatician and he went through and he edited, I'm serious, he edited Amazing. the paper in such a way that I, under, and he was making the point that, okay, you know that I'm into sports, you know, I'm writing a book, you know, we do research, but here's the thing. I have these ideas about quality that supersede everything and they infuse everything I do. So here's another person that we know is a sports person. What I actually learned from him and remember most vividly was, first of all, he was a sharer. He wanted students to be a part of this big project. And he had these ideas about what good quality looked like. And he wanted us to insist that we would live up to that standard as well. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a yeah, yeah. fantastic story. So Gina, sort of turning on to uh, more sort of academic matters, how did you become interested in psychology and why did you decide to specialize in organizational psychology? 
I, my first, I know when I read my first psychology book, it was a developmental psychology book, a book about child psychology. It was given to me by my father when I was like about 14 years old, for whatever reason. I even remember that the cover of the book was yellow and he had sent this book to me. And I don't know why, but I read the book from cover to cover. I underlined things. I was so fascinated. I must have said something that caused him to send it to me, but I don't remember. And ever since then, I knew that I was really fascinated by this thing called psychology, but it wasn't until I was ready to make the decision about college where I thought I was going to study journalism when I first went. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And my father, I said to my parents, I want to study journalism. And they said, my father said, I will help you with your college, but not if you study journalism. He said, you can study something else. And then as you learn more about it, you can write about it. You can be a journalist about it. But he said, I'm not going to train you, teach, help you become a journalist. And he had a reason. The reason was that he had worked in the newspaper business in England in the 1950s and 60s. And he said, most journalists are alcoholic who sport, and they smoke too much. Um, so that was an old fashioned idea. But, um, but that was my interest in psychology. And I also had this interest in journalism. I chose the psychology in the end because I loved it, despite, you know, uh, anything else that someone else might have thought. And I was really lucky. Again, I had a, I met, I had several mentors in, as an undergrad, and one of those mentors um, is a woman named uh, was a woman named Gaylene Parole. Uh, she's deceased, but she was a PhD in social psychology from the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research, and she started telling me all about the various options in psychology. She was the first person that mentioned industrial and organizational psychology to me. I had no idea what it was. And she said, you don't just, you don't have to do clinical. You can do whatever you want. So she taught me to explore those things. I researched them and I discovered industrial and organizational psychology. And I said, that's the thing. I like the business. I like the human element of it. And there, and then I sort of set the, you know, my, my sights on getting a PhD in, in that uh, discipline. That's what I did. Oh, brilliant. And, and so once you decided on uh, industrial organizational psychology, how did your uh, career evolve? Um, mm-hmm. Do you take any particular steps? Were you intentional or did it just happen? Oh. You know, like for many people, it just, you know, there's well, a bit once of I decided, yeah. once I decided it was, I was very, very intentional. You know, I did a master's right. degree in industrial and organizational psychology. Then I went to work in corporations for a few years. And then I went back and did a PhD in the same discipline. Uh, and I got that all done. Um, and, and, you know, all the work, any internships and everything that I did were very purposefully selected to support that. But the thing is that I feel that what really set me on the track that I'm talking about with this, with this psychology was so much by education. It was more that I learned a long time ago, and I think I learned this from my grandparents, neither of whom finished high school, but one, but one was an entrepreneur. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother ran a little neighborhood shop, and my maternal grandfather worked all of his life. However, uh, considering the fact that neither of those people was educated, they were very influential in their community, but they were also people who were constantly encouraging me to, what I learned from them is that you can work with people. You can work, you can either work with people or you can work against people. And my grandparents were working with people, people. And I learned from them that you can create something, you can build something if people can work together. To this day, I, 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 it is probably the most important lesson I learned. That is how I knew that there is a way that people can do business together that can either support 
the business outcomes are not. And that is ultimately, I think, why I ended up in, in organizational psychology um, and have no regrets. Um, and you did ask me, you know, was I purposeful? But one has to be purposeful. If, you, if, if someone's listening who's considering this career, I'd give them two pieces, well, a couple of pieces of information. One of them is that you don't have to have a PhD. But if you get a PhD, it will work to your advantage as you go through your career and seek to have a little more control of your career choices. But there is so much you can do without it. And frankly, what is even more important is that you spend as much time within your business situation, wherever you are working today, paying attention to what's going on around you. That is actually how you're going to be a more effective organizational psychologist down the road. I think there's some great points coming out of that. I think, you know, firstly, with your grandparents, knowledge is everywhere uh, and experiences are everywhere. And I think sometimes people think that it's a particular type of person who's going to help them. And, and actually, you're uh, diminishing the, the, the ability of serendipity and luck, but, but also this idea of just being aware, because there are so many interesting interactions going on. And if you just step back and, and look and think about your situation and not get too caught up in the detail. Um, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. I mean, what do, what do you think, Gina? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Because I, I mentioned my grandmother. Now, again, I grew up in a colony for most of my life. And, in, and one of the things that you're taught to do is you must complete a certain kind of education. Then you do A-levels, which is yeah. just um, uh, for the benefit of those who don't know what they are. It's just kind of like, think of it as like uh, what in the United States might be called junior college. It's like two years after your, your regular high school, but it's really intense. So if you do that, you're on a, you know, people think you're going to university for sure. And then you must go to university and you must study the certain three or four things and then you must graduate like there was this path that I expect was expected to be on because that's the way I was raised but the irony of all of that is that neither of my grandparents on my mother's side had graduated high school I said this before and to this day remain the people who have been the most impressive to me in terms of what they have accomplished so the grandmother was somebody that if she if you gave her a dollar she would find a way to save 50 cents and then with the other 50 cents, she would find a way to create something, whether she, that meant she had to make her own clothes, whether that meant that she had to, that she created a community organization so other people could learn from whatever she studied and invent, you know, she would study things and she would say, whether it was cake making or icing cake, icing, I remember this very clearly, very vividly, she learned how to make soap, she learned she would do these things and then she would have a class and teach everybody in the neighborhood if they wished how to, to do those kinds of things. Um, the truth is that one doesn't have to have the traditional academic credentials. And especially now, I think that's more obvious because the disadvantage of those traditional academic credentials, which, you know, I value them, obviously, but the disadvantage is that they set you on a very narrow path in your thinking. So here we are in a world where I'm beginning to notice that finally people are starting to see value in people who are artisans, people who do things with their hands. I have a friend who is a PhD in, um, in uh, electrical engineering. And one of the things that he would always, I remember, I never forget this. He said to me one day, he's, he needs to go buy a new belt, whatever. So yeah, go buy a new belt. Well, he came back with this belt and he proceeded to explain to me why he bought this particular belt and why he explained to me about the belt. Very specific, I remember this to this day, was that the entire length of the belt was one piece of leather there was no joining, no connecting, one solid piece of leather going through the loop of one simple metal um, 
metal buckle that is the kind that would not tarnish. He knew what he was looking for in the buckle. And, and then the only additional piece of leather was the loop that the belt would then come back through and then go in to sit flat. Why am I telling you this? I remember him explaining to me why this was the ultimate design, design element that he was looking for as an engineer was the simplicity. And then the second thing was the quality of a thing that he knew he didn't have a lot of money. We were in school. He says, I'm going to buy this belt. I guarantee it's going to last me for the next 10 years or beyond. I didn't think anything of it. But the maker, the people who create things with their hands, who like their creators, right? They, they, they just somehow get this inspiration out of their heads and they make something. We kind of under have undervalued those kinds of people and put more emphasis on academics. But the world today needs both types of people. And so um, I, you know, when people ask me for advice, yeah, do the academics if you can, but do not lose sight of what are all the other capabilities that you might have. It's funny you talk about that because I think that whole idea of creativity, it, it's so interesting because for me, I love, I'm a big film fan. I love films and you know, I'm, ideally I would have become a film director, Wow! Uh, but I, obviously I have no particular talent in that area, yeah. but by doing these YouTube videos, oh, by doing the podcast, I almost feel as if I'm creating a film, creating a story um, and it's sort of giving me a, a an outlet for my passions. And I just it, find it's interesting if you have a something that you like um, you may not be able to do do it in its sort of you know the primary way but you can find sort of side projects where you can unleash your creativity um, and, I, and I think it's interesting that a lot of people think oh they're not particularly creative but I think we have far more ability to do things than we think mm -hmm. and sometimes right. it's just being put in a particular situation now mm -hmm. I never thought about starting a podcast but it just suddenly organically happened. And I had no particular <laughs> aims to do 40 episodes, but, yeah. but, but it's all about just doing one episode at a time and just, I think, concentrating on making it as good as possible. Because yeah. I think, you know, once you have something out there, um, you know, the popularity to some extent is important, but I think if the, if the work is not good, um, then I think that's yeah, the, the whole point is you want to make something as good as possible yes. and that has quality. And then even if one person like, likes it, if that one person is, say, I know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, um, and you happen to meet them and they say, oh, harsh, or I saw that ep episode with Gina, it was amazing. Um, then, yeah, th that's something I, I personally think. So Yeah, and so Harsha, I feel like I have to correct you right off the bat because you said, that you had this interest in this interest in filmmaking and you don't know you didn't have any talent for it that's what you said and then the following sentence you talked about the podcast and you made the point that this was clearly something that is you know it was in you and you got the chance to do it so you just contradicted yourself because I'm one of the people who could say that you obviously have the talent right well thank you to your point because even in preparation for this interview those of you who are listening to it don't have any clue you might think that Harsha just shows up and starts asking questions. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, these conversations are organic, they're flowing and so on. But I am impressed by the fact that I know how much effort and planning he does and research and preparation for these conversations, like every other professional filmmaker or, or even professional podcaster would do. And the clue to that, I'll, I'll give you a clue to, if you want to listen back to rewind this podcast, 
was when he read my bio and at the end of it, he said, and she wants a vacation in Scandinavia. Now, I don't remember discussing that with Harsha. I don't think I did. I think Harsha picked that up from somewhere else that I mentioned it, but I'm making the point. He took the time uh, to do that. So you can ignore what he said a few seconds ago when he said he didn't have that talent. He obviously does. <laughs> well, thank you, Gina. And my parents will be particularly, uh, it's funny, that they're, they're um, uh, sort of, uh, bar for the uh, episodes of my podcast are are the guests nice about me so then oh <laughs> I think they'll yes. really like this podcast oh that's fantastic <laughs> and and I wouldn't you know you did not pay me to say that <laughs> I wish you give a, a shout out to your mom and dad as well you know for yeah. all the things that they've done for you turning to your book um, which I've been reading thank you for the advanced copy really uh, enjoyed reading leading inclusion and the cover design was amazing so t- tell us uh yeah, a little bit about it and what inspired you to uh, start off on this journey and, and also your sort of pivot to uh, creating your own company. Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. You know, so I've worked in corporate America for 20 something years. I like to say it's all I know. There, there are so many other things that matter in the world. This is my habitat, both in terms of where I've worked and, you know, I do consulting to leaders in corporations and, and I feel like I know corporations as well or business, the business life as well as anybody else would. And it's sort of a game that one plays to to sort of get ahead and fit in and, and all of that. And I can play that game to the hilt and be successful. I did not plan to write this book and I did not plan to write it when I did. But in March of 2020, I was still employed uh, by a company and Brianna Taylor was killed by police. And I remember seeing that story and having a profound emotional response. Now, she was not the first person who had ever been killed by police officers. But what was unique about that situation to me is that I felt immediately like she could have been my daughter. I have a daughter. uh, And I just wondered, like, it could have been her in that particular situation. And so that was my reaction. And then as I was really dealing with that on a daily basis, then George Floyd was killed in May, just two months later. And I'll be honest with you, my entire life changed. I went through the whole sobbing. I mean, I went through a very strong emotional thing about that whole uh, experience to this day because I, I recognize, like so many people recognized, that this can't be what we want for ourselves in this world. And so that was where the book came from because I sort of made the decision in the moment that I had to do something to contribute to a world in which we can have humans with all the variations that we show up with and all of the variations would be okay. That is a goal. And it's, I, it sounds so simple, but it is very hard to accomplish that. But how can I contribute? You know, I might not be the one that is going to be running for office. I might not be the one who's marching in the streets, but maybe I can take everything that I've ever known, all my training and my personal experiences and make that be the way that I share my vision for what the workplace specifically could look like in the future if we didn't have this problem. So that was why I decided to write this book. And thanks to the designers at page two for creating such a fantastic cover, uh, which I absolutely love because my book is about change, transformation. And it's the making the point that you know, for my ideal reader, who would be a leader, especially at the top of an organization in the C-suite or one level down or corporate board director to understand that 
this the lack of ex, of inclusion that we are that people who um, who are come who come from underrepresented groups or who have whatever variation it is that they don't feel comfortable in organizations today very often and that that kind of feeling is going to continue until the people at the top of the organization take ownership of this and say we're not going to tolerate that. Once I kind of decided that that was the message I wanted to get across, then writing the book was not easy. You know, and I worked with a a coach to help me with the writing of the book, meaning someone to help me understand um, what good writing is and what the publishing industry is all about and so on. You know, it became a a compulsion. It's something I had to do. So I did eventually quit that job, um, not because there was anything wrong with the job, but because the the desire to change the world was stronger. Uh, And so my book is really for those leaders. And it's meant, I say, it's not a how-to book. You can go buy a a how-to book about some various aspects of what people call diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a different story. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But my book, I call it a how-to-be book. I want the leaders to understand how they need to be if we're going to achieve this, I think, very, very important goal that workplaces can feel like healthy places for everybody who works in them. And then that feeling they can take home and have a positive experience also that they share with other people in their in their personal lives. So it's to have that effect that goes back and forth, you know, from home to work and and feels integrated and good. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I like this point you make about this sort of distinction between diversity and inclusion. Now, obviously, diversity, you know, I, I think you were sort of, when we're saying it's more of a, a numbers type thing, whereas with inclusion, it's actually uh, you have people from different backgrounds and they actually feel part of the organization and there's a certain corporate culture. Um, and I think that's very um, important for leaders to be able to make everybody feel included in their organization. And, you know, I'm sure we, we've talked about this off air that, you know, I've generally had bosses who you know don't look like me, but I've been quite lucky that I've never felt that, you know, not included in their plan. And I think it's just about being given a fair chance. It's not about special treatment. It's just about being treated fairly. I mean, what, what, what do you think, Gina? Oh, you know that I absolutely agree with that. So, you know, um, Dr. Quinetta Robertson uh, is an organizational psychologist, coincidentally, who long ago defined the distinction between diversity and inclusion. So the distinction that she came up with is also the one that I agree with. You know, when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about sort of counting the, the, the characteristics of whatever group we're talking about, whether we're talking about race or gender, disability or whatever. We're just kind of saying, what's the representation? And that's important. Because you should have a workforce that is representative of the available workforce in terms of demographics. The inclusion piece of this conversation doesn't get talked about as much, but inclusion is, okay, okay, so now you've hired these people who who look all these different ways, right? But what are the experiences that they're having every day? And I can tell you from both personal experience and from my consulting experience that people of color consistent and research consistently report a very much less positive experience than those who are in the reference group. So that is just a fact. Why is that? It is because often they are invisible. It's a strange phenomenon, but people of, of color, let's say we're talking about just the dimension of, of race, because we can talk about a lot of different things yeah, sure. and all the variations yeah. matter. But if you just, if just take the one, which is race or ethnicity, what people in those groups will report is that they don't even feel, some of us will say they don't even feel seen. So when the opportunity comes up for the promotion, people will actually say, oh, well, I didn't know you were interested. <laughs> 
why didn't you know I was interested? We never discussed it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, uh, and the, it's not a question that can be answered. It's just the person never even put you in the category of candidate for the promotion. Or how come it is that in financial services, most of the client facing jobs that are high revenue generating tend to be underrepresented by people of color? It's because somebody somehow, I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious, said, we don't think our multi-million dollar clients are going to want people showing up who don't look like them. We, they have to walk a certain way, talk a certain way, dress a certain way, and look a certain way. So it's what is that experience? And an experience, when you measure the outcomes that, uh, that would measure inclusion, that would define inclusion, the outcomes are not representation. The outcomes are what are the ways that you measure success in this organization, whether it's pay, promotion, access to opportunity, um, access to training and, and various things that would make you more visible. It is then, what is that experience like? Those are examples of how you would measure inclusion. And of course, it's talking directly to the people in, the, in all, all employees and asking them what is happening to you on a day-to-day -day basis and wishing that the result would be that every employee, regardless of the variation, would say, we're, this is the experience we're having and not have some employees who say, I'm not having a good experience. And I think following on from that, I think it's really um, the, the, the emphasis you make in your book is it's very much about leadership rather than simply having diversity training programs. Not that those aren't important, but right. It, right. it's really about having leaders who are given uh, the, the right training, the right skills to actually empathize with people. Um, and I think you mentioned it in, in one of your situations when you were earlier on in your career, you had a, a young daughter and obviously there were childcare issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you wanted to try and, you know, fit your work around that. Uh, so if you have a boss uh, who's um, empathizes with that situation, I'm not, not saying that your boss didn't, but, oh, sure. you know, you, you, want, you want to be in a situation where, look, okay, you do the hours and you know, maybe have a flexi time situation or whatever. But, you know, clearly there are many women or other people who have childcare issues or looking after sick uh, parents or, or whatever Absolutely. it is. So it's really Absolutely. just trying to understand that situation and empathize with them. Is yeah. that right, Jean? Yeah. It's true, although I will be very careful. I'm very careful with the use of the word empathy. Uh, I think empathy really matters. And by the way, Sophie Wade has written a brilliant book on this subject. Empathy Works is the, is the name of Sophie's book, which talks about empathy in the workplace. So empathy does matter. But I go a step above empathy and I say, this is a leadership obligation, responsibility, accountability. So I'm not saying that individuals have to be empathic individuals naturally, I, I, don't, I don't care. But I, I say that leaders have an obligation. If you're gonna bring other humans into the workplace to do a job, you have an obligation to treat them in a certain way because each human just by virtue of showing up on the planet deserves that. If you find that people in your leaders in your organization cannot do that for whatever reason, then they're not effective leaders. So empathy is important because the empathy helps you to come to Gina and say, what's going on with you? You know, how can I help? And what do you need? The, hemp the empathy helps with that. But I'm arguing that I don't care if you're empathetic or not, or whether you even understand that concept. What I really want you to start with is to, be, is to understand that you have an accountability as a leader don't don't lead don't have people in your organization leading people that they can't even look them in the eye when they see them in the hallway don't have leaders you know in your organization leading groups of people where they take Susie and Tom to lunch and the other people have no idea why they didn't get invited don't have leaders in your organization 
who will then always put forward Pat every time over and over and over to be the person who gets the plum assignment and everybody else is wondering, well, what's so special about Pat? And I mentioned, I mentioned three examples of behaviors I have observed, by the way, and these are common behaviors. There's nothing unique about them. My point is that leaders have an obligation to think about 100% of the people that they lead all the time. No, I, I just love that point. But I, I, one thing I would say is, look, if you are in that situation, I think you, you need to be realistic about the situation. Unfortunately, you can't change your boss. But I think if you pick those uh, signs up, you have to uh, maybe ask yourself, is this an environment I want to carry on it? on in mm-hmm. and i think uh if the answer is no and you can't really see a future for yourself sometimes you just have to say look bite the bullet and and i, I always say try and empower yourself rather than being disempowered yeah. say okay um in a year's time i want to try and be in a new organization and then reverse engineer that and say okay what is it that i need to do because i think sometimes when you're in a situation where uh you're slowly being worn down you almost lose your mojo and and what makes you great so i think you've got to be really be careful about not just being worn down by negative situations and i'm not saying you shouldn't struggle because life is sometimes about struggle but there it's a it's a balancing line between struggling in a situation where you're never going to win or struggling where you know there is a possibility of going forward i mean what, what do you think gina Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Harsha. And all of us have to figure that out where that line is, right? Because we, <clears throat> when we find ourselves in situations that are challenging, regardless of the reason that they're challenging, we all do this analysis in our head. First of all, we go, did that just happen? Or, <laughs> okay, so we first try to like verify, is this real or am I making it up? Then you go, is it just me? You start kind of trying to see, you look for the patterns because you, you don't want, first of all, you, you're in this job that you want to keep. You need a job. You, you don't want to be um, impulsive in your judgments or your decision-making. And the worst thing that you don't want to do, the thing you don't want to do is, you know that if you start having negative feelings about the person who manages you, that that can work against you because every morning when you wake up, you're like, oh my gosh, now I got to go interact with this person again. You, we know this in our gut. We wish it weren't so. So we go through that period where we say, okay, you know what? I think this is real. This is real. Okay, we do that. Then we have to decide, well, what do we do? So you're making the point at this, that this is the point at which you have to decide, am I going to stay in the situation perpetually, stay in the situation until I can find the other thing? And, and the other thing, don't just do it impulsively, have a plan. So Harsh is recommending the same thing I would, which is once you decide that something has to change, you'll have to have a plan about what it is you're looking for because you shouldn't run away from the job. You should run towards the next opportunity. So I actually have some suggestions about this, which is to say the very minute that you start your new job, you ought to be updating your resume. You've heard this before, but I don't know very many people who do it. You must always have an up-to-date resume. And when you accomplish something in your job, make a note of it. Just write it on that same document where you're keeping your resume. It doesn't have to be fancy. Just remind yourself the date, the year even, and what you did. Just write it down so that when you go back to finalize this resume, when you make the decision, you don't have to try to remember because you're not going to remember half the things you accomplished. So there's that. The other thing is everybody should have a side hustle. And when I say a side hustle, I mean, as long as you figure out what you might want to do, 
every day you ought to be doing something that will get you towards the thing you want to do. So if the thing that you want to do is to have a podcast or to be a, an audio producer of world-class quality where people in Missouri and all parts of the United States will download your podcast, you might be thinking about that while you're in, cur- in your current job. In the old world, employers would discourage you from doing anything outside of your job. And they did that actually, because they thought it meant that you would then have all your energy left for them. In this world and the future world, it is pretty clear you ought to be thinking about yourself as well. And not just because you're trying to be selfish, but you're trying to be satisfied. If not, you're gonna leave anyhow. So as you think ahead, think about the thing, I wanna be a podcaster and every day do one little thing research other podcasters, figure out, you know, what kind of equipment, just start thinking about that sort of stuff. And there's sort of that manifestation that happens. Um, So I said, you should prepare the resume, you should do a side hustle. But I think the, the most important thing that you should do is to start putting yourself around other people who are doing the things to which you aspire. That does not have to be on a big scale. You don't have to move. You don't have to go to meetings, especially not nowadays. You should be reading what they read. And when you do a little quick Google search, you say, I want to be a marketer. And you find a marketing association. I guarantee you they're going to have free virtual meetings. Sign up for every one of those free virtual meetings that are outside of your current work schedule and just start attending. You don't have to contribute anything. You're soaking it up. Uh, Those are three little actions. and, And you might think, what difference does it make? But I'm telling you that ultimately it's the same issue with regard to the to this fundamental issue of you know bias and 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 underrepresentation and discrimination and poor treatment in the workplace. We have agency. That's yeah. the point that Harsha was making that I completely concur with. And we have agency regardless of what our issues are in the workplace. And if that happens to be the issue and that's the reason, it doesn't matter the reason that you might want to change. All of us, each one of us should have the self-respect to say, I know there's something that isn't right. I want something better. I'm going to set myself up. And I'll say one more thing harsher, and then I'll stop about this. I'm not naive. Not everybody has all these options to do everything. There are things that require money, money that you might not be able to do, but you'll notice the examples I just shared with you were not things that require money necessarily. What they are things that require is that you have a plan and that you take the action so that when I, here's my criterion, six months later, when I say to you, Harsha, what have you done so that you, Harsha, okay, Harsha, you keep complaining to me about what's going on in your job. And I say, Harsha, what have you done? And you say, well, Gina, I created a plan. I say, okay, give you a point. And then I say, well, what have you done on the plan? You say, well, I did this and this. I'm like, that's exactly right. But if your answer is, um, I'm still complaining, nothing has changed. I haven't created a plan. I haven't done anything. I don't want to hear it because you are not taking the opportunity, the agency that you do have. Yeah, no, totally. And actually, one one thing I, I also would add is that uh, speak to other people um, because sometimes, it, it, just like you're saying, you you experience something and you're thinking, did that really happen? But actually, when you speak to somebody else or, or show somebody that email, then you have somebody else's perspective. Yes. And I think ninety five percent of the time, it did really happen, or there was that. Yeah, and and in a way, you. It, you feel better about yourself because you you realize, look, this isn't right. Um, but otherwise, it's in the back of your mind. Am I just you know being too sensitive? But actually, most of us, yeah, they they know. I think we know um, what's right and what's wrong. So, yes. 
Yeah. And, and actually, sort of this whole idea about leadership. Now, um, if you are, say, taking on new uh, new leadership roles, and I think people, as they progress in their career, they do the technical piece very well. And it's those uh, 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 men and women who are good at the technical side, they normally get rewarded with the managerial roles. Um, what what can people do to sort of prepare themselves? What would you suggest, Gina? How how can people get you know, uh, do things to prepare themselves to take on new challenges? Yeah, and first of all, not everybody should be a leader. And, and yeah. as you think about what you want to do, don't assume that the path is leadership. The reason many people assume that the path is leadership is just because traditionally, again, in organizations, that has been the only way to make more money or to get more, more influence in an organizations to be a leader. But there are other paths, you know. Um, but let's say that you are that that is the path that you have chosen is that leadership path, which is definitely a great choice. Um, the thing about it is that the very first thing for an effective leader is you have to really understand yourself. And I guarantee you, without going to, without doing one more thing, if you sat down for a few minutes and just ask yourself, what are my strengths? Here's another way of putting it, because this is what I do with my clients. You know, what are the things that you do now as a human that you think you should keep doing because they're going to help you be effective in leadership? What are the things that you do right now as a human that you think you would have to stop doing when you become a a leader if you were going to be effective? And then the third thing is, what are the things that you don't know anything about now or don't do that you might have to learn about or, 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 or become more proficient in in order to become an effective leader? Keep, stop, start. I like that because it's easy to remember, but also because leaders are just humans. So a lot of the behaviors of effective leaders some of them are behaviors you already have. But by the way, you know how some people say people leaders are born? Yeah, there, are, there clearly are some people who are charismatic and have all that stuff from the beginning, but you can learn to be an effective leader. So on that side of what are the things that you need to, to become or to do or, or to master, I think you have to remember that leadership sort of has two components to it, or at least two. I'm just going to talk about two. It's you're helping people to get a job done. That's what a leader does. It's not like you're pushing them to get the job done or telling them to get the job done. The leader's job is to help people get a job done. So there's the task part. And then there's the part of the job that is the human part, which is to interact with the humans who are getting the job done in such a way that it encourages them to do the work and does not take away any of their natural shine or capability. So you have to ask yourself about both those dimensions. If you come from the technical, you're probably pretty strong on the task side. So the, uh, so, so within this, this interpersonal aspect of things, I, I feel like the most important thing that you should do after having done that self-analysis that I was describing is really observe what is what others or think about what others who have been in this role or a role similar have done that you have observed that has worked and what has, has not worked. Many people step into leadership roles knowing fully well the person before them Everybody has strengths and weaknesses, right? They have an idea of what works. What most of the people do is they just slip right into what was there and just keep on with the same old, same old. But the best thing that you can do as a new leader is to really have a sense of what it is that you desire. What is your vision for your team? I don't care how small the team is. It could be the three people working at McDonald's. What is your vision for it? What would you want? What would you want those people in in that team to say about you six months from now? Let that determine the things that you focus on that you need to work on. Don't let somebody above you tell you what that should be. So you talk to your team more more than ever before and find out, you know, what is working. It's it's like a cheat sheet. It's like a no-brainer. You don't have to figure it out yourself when you're a new leader. You talk to the people you lead and ask them what they need. 
they will tell you what they need. And then you say, oh, I guess I better get better at this because they need this and I don't have that. Or, oh, I got this. I'm really, I'm, I'm serious. I'm dead serious here. Most leaders do not talk to the people they lead and therefore they're, they're leading blindly and thinking that they're doing the right thing because it's in their heads. Um, so you can see the point that the, what I'm trying to communicate here, uh, Harsha, is that most people make this way more complicated than it yeah. needs to be, number one. And they, they don't give themselves credit for the things that they already have as their strengths. But I would say the most important thing is to really spend time talking to people you will lead and let them tell you what they need. I just love that. And going on from that, I uh, have started you know, reaching out to some of my sort of podcast followers and asking them, you know, are you enjoying the content? What can I improve? Because I think ultimately, look, I, I have a vision of what I'd like the podcast to be about and the topics, but it's the listeners. They're the ones who are consuming it. So if I'm creating content, which is of no use and no value, or, or there are areas that I'm not covering, then what's the point? So I think you know, it's so important to have that communication. And, and especially like the ones who are very sort of straight and blunt, and they say, this is good, this is not so good. And, and I, I appreciate that because a lot of people just are not um, straightforward. So um, yeah, yeah I, I, I just love that. Yeah, no, brilliant. So Harsha, I, I'm so glad you said all of that because that is exactly the point that I think doesn't get talked about or taught enough when people are being developed as leaders. The expert in your quality of leadership is not the textbook, the boss above you, or your or your peer group. It is the people you lead. Yes. So if, if you talk to the people you lead, magically, you will know whether you're off on a tangent yes. or not. But there's another word that you used in there that I wanted to highlight, uh, Harsha. You said, feedback and you said most people don't want to give it or are, there's an awkwardness about feedback and and um they might not be blunt if you lead your team and they don't want to if you're if you come into a new team and you find that people don't want to give you feedback early on don't be shocked what that tells you is that the person to whom they reported previously had created a circumstance that made it uncomfortable or impossible for them to give feedback they did not feel safe that's another piece of feedback that you as a leader now have to take and say what can i do to create, to create a new environment so that the folk in this team, they've been there before me. They're, I want them to feel comfortable with me. So you do what Harsha did. You set a vision for yourself six months from now. And how would you know if you were successful with regard to creating a culture of safety? It's when Tom, Dick, and Harry, one by one, either call you, email you, walk into your office and say, hi, Harsha, do you have a minute? I wanted to tell you something. If you have people who report to you and they come to you, you will have achieved this goal of creating that environment of, of comfort, care, and connection that I talk about. I didn't talk about it before, but I usually talk about it. So the interesting thing is, and I love that Harsha talked about the example with his listeners, you have to set the vision. You have to say, I want for my team that they will not just get the job done, but that we together will accomplish great things. And therefore they have to be happy and content and be part of the solution by letting me know what they need. It's a, it's a connection. It's, it's, yeah. it's a symbiotic relationship. So I'm going to, that's the vision I'm going to set for my leadership, for my team. And I'm not telling you that is easy, but if you don't even have that vision, it's never going to happen. And, and I think if there's goodwill there, that makes such a difference yes. because, yes. you know, um, and, and, and say on a sort of diversity thing, I, I, you know, 
I'm sure there have been situations where you know people misspeak, people say things out of turn, but they're not. There's no malice. Yeah, you, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I've said things, which, and I'm sure you've said things. But I think when that, yeah, when, but when there's fundamental goodwill, you say, oh well, like 99% of the times, this um, man or woman has, you know, they're in my corner, they got my back. We we say silly things. There's no malice, and I think I just wish people could have a bit more. Uh, yeah, understanding and tolerance, and I think it it does come down to the relationship. I think that if the relationship is good, and and they probably also feel embarrassed themselves yeah. they've said it. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, go it ahead. It comes Jean. down to trust. I mean, it yeah. comes down to trust, and so anybody can develop a, a trusting relationship with anyone mm-hmm. else. You know, in my in my own life, I have a, a a rule, a rule that I follow with it when it comes to this. You know, first of all, hum, I'm into humans. If I, I there's not a human I have met that I felt I was superior to that person or inferior to that person. And so I think they're just, they're humans and we just connect with one another and we relate. But I do have a rule. And that is when I'm with humans and and I give them the benefit of the doubt, which is what I do. People who have negative vibrations or who only say negative things or who only want to do negative actions, I kind of make a note of that. And I'm like, I'm gonna minimize my interactions Till they get to zero. I'm not gonna have. I'm just not gonna interact with those people, because they create um, a feeling in my in my world that follows me beyond that moment and leaves me feeling sad, depressed, whatever the right words are. And I know that I'm not having it. I don't want to have anything to do with that. So trust in the workplace. Um, you're gonna meet all sorts of people. But I do think you start, you give them the benefit of the doubt. If yeah. there are people that are going to be negative, you try to minimize their contact, your contact. If they're your boss, you might not be able to completely <laughs> eliminate it. But then it goes back to what we started with earlier. That's a plan that you might have to have. But I'm assuming that most people, most people are not that. Most people are not wicked, bad, negative. Most people are not that. So you start giving you with the benefit, benefit of the doubt. And you can help people to understand sometimes when they did something. I had a situation um, this year where I, um, I, I was in a new, uh, group working together on some activities. And I noticed from the very beginning that the person that was leading the team was having really difficulty making eye contact with me. But beyond that, the person would, would say and do some things that sort of, it felt to me as if they were, um, sort of demeaning my contribution or my value to the team. Sure. And I had to make a decision. I would not let that stand. But my my action was not to like argue with this person in a meeting or say, I can't believe you did that or tell everybody. You know, my What I decided to do, I did validate it by asking somebody else after a while if they understood what I, if what I was saying yeah. made sense. And then I just made a one-on-one meeting with the person and talked to that person. And I said, you know, blah, 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 small talk, small talk, small talk. And then I eventually said, you know, I just wanted to share something with you. And I found that the words, I just wanted to share something with you, then sets it up to the person that's listening. And then you get to say what you have to say. And I love to say something like this. I love to say, you you probably don't realize it, but when you said so-and-so or when you did so-and-so, this is how it made me feel, or this is what happened, or this is how my colleagues reacted. And I know you probably didn't notice that. And I just wanted you to know because I was I was concerned about it. And I wanted to, I wanted you to know. The words that I just used are words I've used many, many, many times. And I'm not saying you should use my words, 
But if you're going, if something happens to you and you do feel like you need to react to some to something that makes you uncomfortable, it is always better to have a plan for how you will say it because you really only have, you have two objectives in conversation. You have one objective is to get your point across so that that other person can hear your disappointment, your hurt, your whatever it is you wanna communicate. But if they can't hear it, that you didn't accomplish the first goal. But then the second goal you have is that at the end of it, you still have a positive relationship with that person, yeah. unless of course you really don't care. <laughs> but most of the time we're talking work, right? Ideally, you would have, you still have a whole relationship. So you do have to think about that. And that by, by no means am I suggesting that you don't get seek redress if you have a problem. I'm not suggesting any of that. I am suggesting, however, it is to your advantage to manage the situation, to your advantage. Uh, you know, lawyers always say, you know, they don't ask you a question unless they know what the answer is already. You manage that situation. So you, you go in with two objectives, to get your point across in a way that they can hear it, but also to have a relationship at the end of it. It is that is another thing that is not easy, but can be done with practice. Yeah, and 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 maybe even uh, try and game plan that with a friend or a trusted colleague Absolutely. or whatever. Because Role I think the more, yeah, 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 the more you do it, then you can refine the way you approach that yes. person or the word, and also the words you use are very important um, because you just don't want to trigger somebody as well by accusing you, and and then that's a whole heap of trouble. So I yeah. think keeping on a very low. Uh, key basis but but I think not having the conversation is also not doing yourself any good because you'll just get upset and then leave maybe or yeah right right absolutely and this goes through for spouses and friends as well (laughs) (laughs) you know you 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 sometimes have to say something to a loved one and you don't know what to say. And the worst thing you can usually do is just blurt out the first thing that comes to your mind. It's the same kind of thing. Cause at the end of the day, you, you want you, this is your relative and loved one. And you want to, you want to have a good relationship. Mm. The workplace relationships are not at the same level, but it's the same thing. It's like, take a little time to think about and don't say that, you know, don't just be impulsive. Yeah. One of my previous guests made the comment that you can either be right or be married. <laughs> Yes. it's about compromise or in a relationship or whatever it is any relationship any relationship and that goes for the workplace as well Mm -hmm. i mean and 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 then of course the the follow-on from that is if you're always compromising that is another story you you observe that over time that we're not talking about that because that's not good either but we're just assuming goodwill in our interactions with people and we give them the benefit of the doubt we do what we do we watch how they react and then we go to this you know we just keep moving that's all yeah, no, fantastic. And now, Gina, I know that we're running up to uh, the wow. end of our time. It's just gone so quickly. That's we, could have had, we could have had a, like a, a trilogy. This could have been part one. But um, yeah, I, I like to offer my guests a chance to give a shout out to somebody who's um, had an impact on their lives or their careers. Is there anybody in particular you'd like to mention mm-hmm. on the podcast? Yeah, I would say that uh, at this moment, I've really been thinking a lot about uh, the the faculty members, the professors that I had at the University of South Florida in Tampa, where I did my PhD. And I've been thinking a lot about them because of obvious reasons, but also because I'm at the point in my career where everything is sort of coming together, where I had known now why I was put on the planet and and what it has to do with my profession. Um, And so Dr. Wally Borman, and Dr. Paul Spector are these two professors that I have had. Um, I've known them now for decades. 
they were my instructors, they were my mentors, they were my sponsors, and now they're my friends. And I have not lost an ounce of my respect and admiration for them over the years. Uh, and if anything, I am more appreciative today of the contributions they made to my life than I have ever been. So shout out Wally and Paul. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, and Gina, look, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. We've had a you know, great conversation, covered yeah. so many things. There's so many things that we haven't covered either, but <laughs> um, unfortunately that's that's life and that's time. But, um, you know, really appreciate having you on the show and I'll make sure um, all our listeners, they have your contact details, social media, mm -hmm. uh, website, all that stuff that will yes. all be in the show notes. Um, and also just wishing you well with the publication of your book. And um, uh, remind me, Gina, when does it come out? And, and also the name as well. Yeah, my book, Leading Inclusion, comes out October 11th, 2022. And I'm very excited, looking forward to it, and appreciative of you making time for me on your podcast. Because now I guess I'm going to have to force myself at some point to listen to myself on a podcast, uh, because I listen to your podcast and I can't skip over my episode. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic anyway th thanks so much gina really uh, appreciate the time once again and yeah good luck with the book and yeah really looking forward to the publication because i think it's it's really important that these voices these stories come out and and i think it, it's really about leadership you know obviously these other things are you know diversity it's important but um i think yeah leadership and equity i think those are such crucial things it's really about having a fair chance having a chance to be able to showcase your talents and not asking for special favors or privileges, but really it's about having a chance, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Leadership. Leadership is the thing that will make the difference. Brilliant. Anyway, Gina, thanks so much and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Harsha. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening, wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.